Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I am Chapin Hemingway, joined as always by Lee Carlo and Jeremy Fisk, baby. This week we're doing, in honor of Halloween, a look back uh, on its 40th anniversary at Stanley Kubrick's horror masterpiece, The Shining. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family. Well... Can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not gonna happen with me. <laughs> that's right. Mom, they really wanna go and live in that hotel for the winter. Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is uh, the tremendous sense of isolation. Is there something bad here? I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. Dude, I, I killed you with Manny. You did this to me. Did you? I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Here's Johnny. Alright guys, this week's episode is brought to you by Hattori Hanzo Swords. Handmade in Okinawa, Hattori Hanzo forges each sword to order. After swearing an oath to God 28 years ago to never make a sword again, Hanzo has returned to sword making better than ever. If you have vermin to kill, there's nothing better than Japanese steel. Hattori Hanzo. If you should encounter God, God will be cut. So, The Shining is a film that is quite rare in the sense that it has a movie, a documentary made about the theories about the film called Room 237. And I think that movie is really more about, you know, the type of people who think of those conspiracy theories than really about theories about the movie. But there's a lot of lore surrounding this movie. But I think one of the more interesting things for me um, about the production of this movie and the subsequent reputation it has is that it's one of the most notable, if not the most notable, divergence between the original author and the outcome of the, of, the, of the final film. Stephen King, who wrote the original novel, this is based on, hates this movie. Um, and that seems strange because this is one of the greatest well-regarded horror films of all time based on his book. Um, so with that in mind, um, I just wanted to read you guys a little quote from a, a, a Kubrick documentary, a Kubrick um, biography that is uh, about how he came to choose the shining as his follow up to Barry Lyndon. Now Barry Lyndon was a very expensive movie about, um, you know, British nobility, et cetera, set around the Napoleonic wars. Um, and it didn't do very well. So he was looking for a hit. So let's take that as read. But um, here's the quote. Kubrick's secretary heard the sound of each... Oh, sorry. Um, so basically, Kubrick 
wanted to make a horror movie and he asked for his assistant to find him a bunch of horror books for him to read and he wasn't happy so here's the quote kubrick's secretary heard the sound of each book hitting the wall as the director flung it into a reject pile after reading the first few pages finally one day the secretary noticed it had been a while since she had heard the thud of another writer's working work biting the dust she walked in to check on her boss and found kubrick deeply engrossed in reading the shining so guys with that said, and with the sort of, I think I, I had you guys read the summary of the original book uh, and the divergence between the two, what do you think attracted Kubrick to The Shining in the first place? Lee? Well, there's two things. One, I think he, I'm, I'm sure that he recognized what he could do with that hotel, with the Overlook Hotel, and how he could film that and what how he could put his auteurism into that setting. I think that had one thing to do with it. The other thing I'd like to think is something similar that I uh, continuously get out of this movie and really got out of this movie this time. And it's, it's the deterioration of a character and just how somebody just falls apart in front of you. And I love that about this movie. And I have to think that, you know, he, he was drawn to that, you know, somebody who is, who, you know, is coming through, coming from a movie like Barry Lyndon, where it's, it's very polished, right? It's very much about nobility. You want, he wants to do something the opposite, right? And Jack Torrance is that. So I think he was, had to have been drawn to that. And there's a number of different things that we like about Kubrick and that he does that, you know, makes that work so perfectly. We'll get into that. But I think just that deterioration, that that crumbling of a character has to be something that he was interested in. Jeremy? Yeah, I, I've heard that. I've heard the lore of that story before too, Chapin, and I don't entirely believe it all. Um, I mean, who is this guy to read two pages into a book and then throw it against the wall and say, well, that's not going to work for me, and then know that it's, The Shining is about the deterioration of Jack Torrance after two pages. Like, that's <laughs> that's bullshit. Um <laughs> So I, I've heard that story too, and it's a good it's a good story to tell. But I don't know how much truth there is to that. Um, what what I really think drew him to uh, this story is it. Yeah, I think I think Lee's right. I mean, there's really nothing else here other than um, the only thing I would add is the fact that Jack Torrance is a writer that he's a quote unquote artist of some kind very similar to stanley kubrick that he's looking for isolation i think that's interesting to kubrick i think all those sort of themes plus the deterioration behind being isolated um probably is the thing that drew him to it okay and you think about isolation through his movies too uh even after this i mean isolation in movies like eyes wide shut but obviously isolation in movies like 2001 um i mean Clockwork Orange is about outcast characters. Uh, I don't know that isolation is quite as a prevalent a theme, but it's definitely something that I think he's interested in. And certainly 2001, there's a lot of isolation. Um, yeah, I, I said that, yeah. I think it's interesting that you guys bring up the Nicholson character, um, Jack Torrance. I think that was one of the main disagreements that King had with... Um, with Kubrick was about that character. He didn't like the casting of Nicholson. Um, yeah, he wanted John Voight. Oh, right? hey, well, we what? want to talk about bad casting. Well, hold on, because 
we're going to get into that. I know you're going to go there, but hold, hold, hold your horses, young man. Um, what I would say is that I, I asked a friend of mine who actually Kevin, who was on, who did the star Wars podcast with me and he had read, he's read the shining. And I, I suspected that the Nicholson performance was a lot less sympathetic than the character, um, was originally written by, by King because I think that was one of King's complaints. And I think that that's a really interesting choice from Nicholson and Kubrick. Like, I don't think you're supposed to sympathize with Nicholson at all. You've got that, the, the sort of his introduction, he's sort of walking around that hotel, sort of putting on a face, a professional face for like this job interview. You know, there's all these sort of platitudes exchanged. There isn't a lot of real character. And you get that first sense of an edge when they're driving up to the the hotel. But then from then on, it's just a cascade down. I don't think you ever are in a position where you sympathize or even empathize with him um, as the sort of main protagonist of the film. Um and I think that character is actually more embodied in Danny. Um, but I, I do think that's really interesting because, you know, King saw himself as in, in a way as Jack Torrance, like he was struggling with an alcohol addiction when he wrote the book. He, um, you know, was at the Stanley hotel. Uh, I think that's where the original idea, idea came from. And then the miniseries they eventually filmed that in the actual location there. Um, and it's about his, like you described, Lee, his sort of, you know, disintegration as a character. I I think Nicholson's performance is totally different than that. I don't think that's at all what he's after. I uh, Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. It, it kind of begs the question as to why in those opening scenes, when he's there by himself and he's he's meeting the, the guy running the hotel and giving him the job, why he is so likable. Like he's... He's is like he? really charismatic. I think so in that in that interview scene, he's really charismatic. Like I love the line delivery from him in that scene where he's just like he's just so like he seems so genuine and excited about this job, and like you're sort of excited for him, and like he's intrigued by the story, and he's not put off by it, but he like understands. Like he's a, he's like truly human. It's the most humane you see him in the entire movie, and like right after that. But it's I duplicitous, noticed, isn't it? Like, he's obviously putting on a face. I think that's, like, uh, the that biggest takeaway from that. That could be it, because there's a scene directly after that. He's on the phone, and this is a throwaway, but I noticed it. He's on the phone with, with Wendy, with Shelley Duvall, and he's like, you know, I got a lot more to do up here. And she's excited. She's like, oh, it sounds like he got the job. And he just goes, right, so I'll be up here for a little while. And he just, like, totally dismisses her, and you kind of see this you know, this other character that we're going to come to learn a lot more about. Um, so yeah, maybe that, that's a good point. Perhaps he's just putting on a, putting on a good face in that particular scene. Yeah. Well, um, in, in reading the summary of, um, the book, uh, cause you know, surprisingly, it's been a long time since you read the book. Yeah. We hadn't had time this week to read the book, <laughs> and, uh, to reread the book this week. The thing that stuck out to me the most is there's a moment, I guess, where Jack Torrance try, like pulls away from the shining that's taking over him in the hotel and and tells Danny to get away and to save himself. Um, that is never explored here. So that sympathy aspect where you feel like, well, he has no control over it, that it's whatever the shining is that the hotel has it's taking over his being and 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 making him turn into this 
you don't get that in the movie. So if that's an allegory for alcoholism or, or, or drug addiction or whatever, Coop, uh, uh, what's his name, Stephen King was going through at the time, that's not here. I mean, because there is no pullback. There is no moment of clarity here. It's just one guy going um, insane, really. Well, there's less... This seems odd to say because it certainly does exist in the movie. There's less supernaturalism in the movie than what it sounds like there is in the book. Ultimately, take a couple things out of Kubrick's movie and you have a character that goes insane from Cabin Fever. Right. And And his own own demons are what bring him down as opposed to the... And there's a lot of things that you you can infer he's imagining. The interactions with Lloyd the bartender, the interactions with Grady, the the moment where the supernatural enters this movie, outside of Danny's ability to shine, along with Scatman Crothers' ability to shine and the conversations that they have and the connection that they have, the first moment where something supernatural happens is when Grady unlocks the pantry and lets him out. Right. So, because there was no one else to actually do that. He was locked in there. But until that point, this entire movie is just about a character going insane from isolation. And I actually really well, love that about this movie. Like there, you, are the, there are the supernatural moments with Holloran and Danny. Right. I just, I mentioned that. that That's there. And we can talk about that aspect in Danny's character in general. But just in terms of Jack Torrance, this movie is about him going crazy in isolation. And I like the groundedness of that. You know, this movie ventures into supernatural and to some crazy things that we can discuss uh the effectiveness of but ultimately the large proportion of this movie is is very grounded in reality it's a character that goes insane well i I love that that's my favorite part about this movie i don't know if you guys had a uh, uh, an opportunity to find to look at that youtube clip where it was showing the miniseries that was made in 97 that king was like very closely involved in that was filmed in the Stanley Hotel and, you know, it was basically King's version of the movie and the the, the 1980 movie, the one we're talking about now. And, you know, like... <laughs> what, a, it, what a heat check to try to do that. Seriously. And every... Like, just, just take the example of the, the sort of ghost bartender. In, in this miniseries, you know, again, King's close adaptation of his own work, The it's an old white guy and he's got... Um, old sort of like ghost makeup on like as if he were going to a bad halloween party um but kubri goes the other way like he's he chooses like a really creepy looking guy but to your point lee like it doesn't just like he just like he nicholson says i would give my soul for a glass of beer right now and he looks up and there is the bartender and the bar is fully stocked. And it's like these things just appear and Nicholson isn't like reacting to them. He's just kind of, he's just kind of, it It doesn't really surprise him. He just kind of goes with the flow, which makes it even more sort of blurring the lines between like, is this actually yeah, or is it just a, in an apparition mind? or is it in his mind? And I just love the, so there's a, there's the scene where he first, like you first kind of see his aggressiveness, right? Uh, Shelley Duvall comes in and interrupts him. And then he kind of is just like, every time you fucking come in here, it breaks my concentration. Do you get that through your fucking head? Right. And he like is really aggressive and she's like really put off by this. 
And that just seems like, okay, he's just an asshole, right? It doesn't, that none of that strikes you as cabin fever. You don't feel like he's losing his mind. It's then shortly after that, you get this shot of him just like staring out the window while they're out playing in the maze. And he's just this glazed over look. And it's really creepy. It's a, it's a still you see a lot. And like, that's where, those are the shots I loved in this movie. Like this just, this guy is just like, imploding like his mind is melting inside of his head and little by little this is going to get worse and worse and you know he that first shot Chapin at the bar where you're talking about it he's staring I don't know is he staring directly in the camera I looked at it again I can't tell and he like does this he's like it's it's pretty quiet in here right and he laughs and he's staring if not directly at the camera just to the side of it and, like, this is a guy that is just absolutely losing his mind, and you totally believe that he would be seeing a bartender there, that he would think that he's drinking a glass of Jack Daniels when he's really just probably has an empty one in front of him. And all that stuff works so well. Like, I like you asked what drew Kubrick to this movie, and, like, the way that that stuff is portrayed, you have to think, like, that just was so interesting to him. Because, I mean, and it was interesting to me. And know who else I think it was really interesting to is Jack Nicholson because he you have to give him a lot of credit for that as well because I think his performance sort of dictates a lot of without that without his performance you you're not going to get what you're trying what you're explaining right now Lee right but do you guys know what I mean about his perform like his what he chooses to do is so performative. He's doing all that Jack stuff that you yeah. that you don't, and I don't think it's a bad thing at all. But the the choice, the choices he makes there, and I, that I assume Kubrick influenced him to do, are not intended for us to be like, boy, he's really losing his mind, or boy, I feel bad for him, or I like he's not a character that you relate to or or feel sympathy for and i think that that's really an odd choice but one that i I just love it's just one of the many sort of subtle but i could tell you impactful choices that are made here our experience with watching his performance like i would just say it it was fun like you have fun watching it you're like he does this his jack nicholson thing and you almost want to like clap like you would you guys like it so much would you guys equate this to something like Daniel Plainview, right? Like he's, he's I would, fun to watch. I would weirdly equate it to more like the Joker. Yeah, okay. actually, that's that, a great. Sure. That's, that's, that's a good. Really, that's a yeah. good comparison too. Yeah, uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, not Nicholson's Joker. Right. Well, ironically. Um, uh, yeah, that's a good point. But it's yeah, it's fun to watch. But like, there's there's not anything like particularly likable about the character. There's not anything really to root for. But you're you and. And we talk about this a lot of the times with performance, and performance plays a factor into it. But I think more here it's the character and what's happening to the character and the way Kubrick uh, films it. It's all you want to do is watch what's happening to this character. Um, but that might lead us nicely into some of the other characters because the Danny storyline is obviously really pivotal and his abilities and uh, Danny Lloyd's performance in this movie um uh, are a whole nother aspect of this storyline, which, you know, move, then uh, bleeds into the kind of the, the supernatural aspect of this movie, which 
I, you know, like I said, I liked the deterioration. I liked the cabin fever, the isolation, that aspect, very grounded reality. I had no issues. In fact, I really liked the supernatural elements of this movie, the shining aspect, those pieces. You know, looking back, uh, Danny being able to kind of see the past and the future and the present and, you know, making you question whether or not this movie is kind of just blurring those things is such a cool secondary aspect of this movie, primary aspect of this movie. I'm not even sure which aspect it is. Yes. I I think if there is a heart to this film, it's Danny. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. And I think it's, you know, there are, there are a lot of, you know, we talked about 2001 on this podcast and we talked about eyes wide shut. You know, I think those films, while I love both of them, I, uh, that Eyes Wide Shut is 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 has Tom Cruise, but you know I think sometimes Kubrick's films can feel uh, on their worst days a little sterile. I, I mean I I say that and I don't agree with it, but you know I think critics could could call them sterile, but Danny really just brings the heart to the film and makes you, you know, that's who you're worried about. And I know, and I think Shelley Duvall is part of that as well. Um, and I like the supernatural stuff too. I think, you know, it's probably a credit to King that, that he chose a child for that role in the book, but it's, it's smart. It's like, it's like he is a bridge. He's sort of the bridge between the human beings in this movie and the supernatural, right? Like the supernatural things are, I guess, happening to Jack Nicholson, uh, to to Jack Torrance, um, but Danny is is the one who can kind of dialogue with them in a weird way. I mean, kind of. <laughs> well, in the book, I guess for the summary you sent us, it sounds like the hotel, the supernatural aspect of the hotel, uh, perhaps attempted to take control of Danny, but was unable to, um, and so instead took took control of Jack. You get a little bit of that that storyline and like that, the, that control that these, these supernatural elements have, you get a little bit of that in Dr. Sleep. I don't know if we want to touch on that at all. Um, I watched that this past week. Um, but here in the movie, uh, I think it's a little bit, this movie's a little bit less about like the supernatural elements of the hotel. Those come out towards the end. To me, it's more about, and I and I you know there's a million theories about what this is about but one that I could understand is that like is Danny is none of this actually happening in the present is Danny kind of seeing the past and the present blurring merging right cuz we learn that Jack has been the caretaker for a long time we see the picture at the at the end of the movie July 4th 1921 which guys hopefully COVID is under control and we can have a hundredth anniversary of that July 4th party um, this next coming July. Um, can we recreate that picture? I think we should. I think we definitely should. And then oh, go shine uh, and then go shining on our families. Wasn't that shot in Oregon anyhow? So we could head out, head on over to the overlook. No, I thought we the exterior in- of that hotel. Was- oh yes. Yes. It's the Timberline oh, Lodge. Yeah. Just a f- don't no, know f- me when I'm right. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean that <laughs> photo wasn't shot there. Oh well, the the well, hundred year anniversary one will be. No, actually, that's a good point. Anyway. We, we, why have I not taken you guys up there since you visited? That's silly. Anyway, 
point. Sorry. The elements are too bad to get up there. That's why. Yeah. They have to clo- they have to close the sidewinder. Yeah, it's a sidewinder. Lost my fucking train of thought. God damn it. So I have this like like I agree, uh, sort of agree with the theory that Danny is is seeing the caretaker who you know whether that was Grady or whether that was Jack Torrance we're we're seeing that action play out both in past and present and well, the, I like that aspect like that's that has nothing to do with like the supernatural elements of the hotel I think that's less present in this movie right I think in the book the hotel is haunted. Right. And there's a bunch of terrible things that have happened there, including the thing with Grady, the the caretaker. But I think in the movie, you, I mean, Danny knows something's wrong as soon as he arrives, but then it's not till well, the end it, that Shelley Duvall's character actually starts seeing things as well. Right. And he asks Halloran, he asks Dick Halloran, he's like, something bad happened in this hotel, right? Yeah. And of course we know that already because we've heard the story about Grady. And now here's a, here's, I don't know if you guys have any theory on this, but when, when, uh, Jack is told the story about Grady, uh, the guy tells him the, my predecessor here hired a man named Charles Grady. Right. And then in the bathroom, when he's talking to me, introduces himself as Delbert Grady. Right. And he's at a party that's like, that looks like, it was from the photo that you just referenced. Like it looks right, like a twenties exactly. party and not like something so, that happened 20, you know, 10 or 10 years before, like in the seventies. So there's all sorts of theories you can, you can take from there. Right. So, so Charles Grady never existed. Charles Grady is somebody that Jack Torrance made up. Delbert Grady was a Butler at this party before he, as the caretaker went crazy and killed his family. Who knows? Right. It's, there's all sorts of things in here. And, but stuff like that, you know, it can be frustrating if you let it be, but it also the the mystery of this movie is just a whole other element that we should talk about that just makes it so yeah, interesting well, and good. Th- that sort of segments into or segues into my my question here is like we're talking about. Hold on, I'm theories. hosting this episode. What? <laughs> I'm hosting this episode. Shut the fuck up. We're talking about <laughs> we're talking about theories. We're talking about. Kubrick, we haven't even got into like Steadicam and oh, yeah. and all that stuff, but we we'll get there. But we're we're really sort of talking about all these deeper issues. But what a, did this movie to you guys accomplish? It's like sort of basic goal of being a scary horror movie. Thank you for asking that question. I have never found this film scary because I don't think so at all. I don't think it's scary at all, but I absolutely love it, and I'm not sure why. Hmm. Well, Ch- I think oh it's one God. of the least Chavin, scary. Chavin, do movies. you so do you remember? Chavin, we, so we should just share this with our audience. It's probably on a podcast in the past before we've talked about this, where Chapin just said, uh, "I I love this movie and I don't know why." There's there was a moment when the two of us lived in Los Angeles and we were at a bar and a few deep, and we just you got remember into when this. You used to be able to go to bars. And we just got into this really heated, and I'm going to call it an argument because it was an argument. Although, if anybody was listening, they would have heard that we were just agreeing with each other. Well, Lee, it was a $9 just, beer night, so we were probably pretty was, wasted. Yeah, we were probably pretty drunk. And we were talking about how The how the Shining is so good, and I don't know why. But it's true. But, you, but anyway, that's a sidebar. And I just think it was funny that you mentioned that again. So you still feel that way now. 10 years, 
13 years later or whatever it's been. Well, I've, um, I've thought about it a little bit, but I mean, it's, it's just like, I, <clears throat> I mean, as a, in a little brief history of my relationship with this movie, like when I first saw it, I was not amused. I didn't really understand it and I didn't find it scary. And so it was, it was just sort of, I just thought it was bad. And then slowly after seeing it many, many, many more, more times, I, you know, grew to appreciate it and, and eventually love it. But I've, I've never found it scary. I think it's I, creepy. So, it's, yeah, it's I don't creepy. Think it's, it's disturbing. Haunting. Yeah, it's haunting. It's haunting. So, yeah, it's, and look, I always think that that's tricky. Like, how do you define scary, right? Like, there's, there's a, there's a lot of what's around the corner in this movie, right? So. Well, a year um, ago we did the Blair Witch Project. I find the Blair Witch project to be a very scary movie i think that's scarier i think i think it's like definitely the, scarier than the shining yeah so but i don't know is but the is, shining doesn't even do that thing that um that uh what's it's uh fuck what's the tony collette movie um hereditary, hereditary? Her, yeah, i wanted to bring that, that up hereditary yeah. does to you where it sort of just sits with you where hereditary maybe you don't necessarily is, is very find it scary but it just sort of haunts you afterwards the shining oh, see, honestly I, I, at point at points is laughable oh and see i, think I, a lot I of don't that has to agree with that do with I, shelly duvall's performance but we can right, okay jeremy's jeremy is like i know you're chomping to get to at that, the bit so let's let's I get wanna, there but, I, but wait jeremy I disagree do you with like what this jeremy movie? just said do you like this movie jeremy i do overall i like it but i have my issues with it I have several Christ, issues. Guys, I don't know that I okay. can have another one of these podcasts where we don't Chapin, like movies I'm, we I'm with you. Love. I love this movie. I love this movie. But, Jeremy, I disagree with you about this movie not sitting with you. I think there's a couple things. We've all seen this movie a lot of times. We know what happens. So that's yeah. a big piece. All right. This movie is really haunting. There's a lot like there's a lot of things. We're going to get into the production of this movie, not not what the production was like, but how this movie was made. And there's a lot of things that Kubrick does that make this movie sit with you. And there's a lot of things that he uses, whether it's music, whether it's the steady cam shots, whether it's the space, that hotel, all those things work so nicely. I think it's interesting you brought up Hereditary because I wanted to know what works about this movie when it sort of starts to go crazy and supernatural that doesn't work with some of those Ari Aster movies like Hereditary. Hereditary and The Shining have a lot in common, right? They're slow, like, mood pieces, that right? They, they kind of draw these scenes out. And Aster does a lot of great things in Hereditary. He has some amazing scenes that I think are reminiscent of a lot, what, a lot of what Kubrick does in this movie. And then his movie launches into the supernatural and goes a little bit crazy, mm. and it's hard to buy. It's hard to buy in on that. But this movie does the same thing. And I am on board 100% with The Shining. And I don't know why. I think it has more to do with Kubrick versus Aster than it does movie to movie. I just think Kubrick has a handle on these things. His movie never really changes pace, right? It it's it doesn't go wild in the production. It goes a little wild in the storytelling. Um but I'm I'm curious why why else maybe this works better than a movie like Hereditary when he, when you get to those that finale. It's because Stanley Kubrick's a genius. I mean it, like I, I said this on the on the uh, Eyes Wide Shut podcast, but I'm just hypnotized by this movie. I don't it's know. He's just got hypnotizing. a he's got a hypnotic quality. The photography in this movie, um, I mean, if you divorce, if you try to separate, you know, we talked about writers on the last episode. If you try to sort of separate the the what's written on the page, what, what was adapted from the King book, from 
Kubrick as a director. I just think this is just one of the best directed films ever made. I, I think I agree. There are just some extraordinarily, I, and 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 that's what I'm interested in. And then like I could, you know, sometimes. I mean, I don't want to say that I totally write off the plot. Like, I, I, I don't. And I think it's something we should consider and talk about. But at sort of this stage when, you know, I know everything that happens, I more notice the the directorial nuances. And I, you know, yeah, I, I paid particular attention to performances because I knew one where they were going to be a problem for Jeremy. Um, and... Well, let's get into that stuff because we've talked about the story and the relationship to the to the book. Um I mean, this, the, so uh, I, I wrote down some Oscar snubs. Maybe we can kick it off there. <laughs> it wasn't nominated for a single Oscar. Uh, Best Cinematography went to um, went to uh, the movie Tess, which was directed by Roman Polanski. You guys seen that one? No. No, no I didn't think so. Um, Best Editing, <laughs> I suppose you could uh, understand the argument. Thelma Schoonmacher won it for uh, Raging Bull. Best yeah. Picture and Best Director went yeah. to Ordinary People, Ray, uh, Robert Redford. I actually Redford. have so, issues with... With the editing of The Shining. Oh, okay. Well, we'll get into that. I, I do want to hear your issues, Jeremy. I don't know. Is that a better way to kind of... Are they production-related? I know we can talk about your acting issues, but... Yeah, no. I got, let's talk about the edit. Like, I really dislike the fades in this movie. They really bothered me. They they jumped out at me in this film. And especially... Okay. Maybe yeah. that's true, but like... And I really dis- didn't like the opening the credits. Yeah, the dissolves. Sorry. Yeah. The dissolves. But what about, like... So if we're playing like if we're putting everything on a scale, like have has has a cut to a title card ever been more effective than this than in this movie though? Like, like you cut to Tuesday and it makes you jump. Like, <laughs> but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the dissolves. I know, but I'm just saying if you're if you're putting everything on a scale. So like you're saying the dissolves don't work, right? Yeah. So that goes one way, and then you have something as simple as a cut to a title card that I think works masterfully. Right. Like that tilts the scale the other way. Okay. And I, look, the editing isn't the first thing on my list that this movie got snubbed for. That would be cinematography for sure. Uh, but I think the editing in this movie is is really impressive. Did anyone else have get distracted by that, or is that just me? No, I'm I'm not usually a fan of dissolves. I don't use dissolves in my in my own work a lot, but I don't no, mind them in this. I, uh, yeah, they didn't bother me. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I, I think other than performance, that's the only thing I can nitpick. Uh, okay, well, let's get into it. Let's get into about it. About that, that film. We have to come back to the cinematography and stuff then if we're going to we just will. get into the performances. Okay, go ahead, Jeremy. Uh, Shelley Duvall is laughably bad. Like, she takes you out of the movie and you mm. go, what is happening here? Like, he, Jack Nicholson is so good. And you're so impressed by his performance. And then opposite that is one of the worst performances you've ever seen. And it totally pulls you out of the scenes. Uh, 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 I'm scared of you. So So bad. I am not going to vehemently defend her performance. I will. But I actually think it works in this movie. I think it works fine. I think it is perfect. I think it's perfectly bad. I love that we're all, I love that we have the three stages here. This is great. Uh, it, look, how did she get this job? Okay, so let's 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 backtrack here. All right, so Kubrick. Um, Imagine if it was Meryl Streep. Kubrick didn't. Kubrick didn't. Was it Kubrick that didn't want Shelley Duvall? He wanted yeah, like a he's smart. 
No, he wanted like kind of like a blonde, like someone that looks like they had never had anything bad ever happen to them, right? I, and, I don't know that and, that's true. That's what I read. Anyway, and Shelley Duvall sort of is the opposite of that. She's like very manic, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff written about um, the issues that Kubrick had with Shelley Duvall and the way that he treated her. If you guys watch the making. Uh, the making of The Shining. I would it's have on treated YouTube. her like that too because I, you're ruining my movie. Well, he he does say that, but if you watch the making of The Shining, it's on YouTube. It's like a half hour long. It was made by Vivian Kubrick, who is uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick's daughter. It's uh, great. There's, there's, it's so it, like it. it's legitimately you see them arguing with each other. Like she's yelling at him. Like she was like and and but in the end, she says that the end justified the means. Like she was treated like shit, and she had to do 127 she, takes of of that scene with the bat the on the ones. on the staircases. I mean, okay, and like I he, I di- think he directed her. I mean, he may have been a jerk in his direction and made. The, I mean, but it's Stanley okay. Kubrick. What like what do you I expect? Look, I what I am saying is that. I agree with the fact that the the end justified the means. Right, whatever happened. But you think I her think, performance? was good enough i think her i think her performance works okay we've had this conversation a million times we had it about ben affleck and gone girl uh we had a uh, we we talked about Kristen stewart in adventureland and we we always seem to struggle with whether or not they're good or bad and jeremy i agree there are moments where she is a little bit like laughably but i think i think ben affleck and gone girl's perfect casting i thought he was great and i think Kristen stewart in adventureland is awesome okay and I, i think that Maybe to a lesser extent here, Shelley Duvall works. Okay, there are moments where I actually think she's good. That scene I mentioned earlier, where it's the first time you see Nicholson kind of be an asshole, and he's like, "You're interrupting me. You're breaking my concentration." Like she is like legitimately put off. Like she doesn't know how to react. I thought she was good in that scene. And I'm like I said, I'm not going to vehemently defend her performance. I think there are scenes where she is not good, right? But I think overall, big picture, she works in this role. Uh, yeah, look, I, I think you are supposed to hate her. You are supposed but to look at her. not for her acting. No, not for her acting. But, but Jeremy, she is like, this is not a movie that is going for realism and performances. J- like, Jack no, Nicholson. clearly not. Jack Nicholson isn't there. But e- exactly. Does, but so he she does something like, interesting. She has these big eyes, those that awful mouth, that those teeth, <laughs> and you're just you're supposed to be annoyed with her because suddenly, you know these this this other like I mean I bet in real life she was Shelley Duvall was a beautiful woman but like after this movie, you know what it feels like to be trapped in a hotel with her for six months because you're supposed to understand that she's this kind of like despite being very kind. And nice and and, and yeah, cordial. She's, a, she's annoying. She she's annoying is annoying. Herself. But when she no, comes in, like, she's like, no "I'll bring you a couple reason. sandwiches." Yeah, she's just trying to be nice. But like, you sort of understand him being like, "Get the fuck away!" Exactly. From me. And I think when she gets scared, you really think she's scared, and she's like melting down. And she's. I think that's a totally convincing performance. But even in, but like, this is a trope of horror films that's well established the like especially and it's it's a little sexist because when especially with women 
they they get in these situations where they're like, "What are you? Why are you running?" In the, there's like a there's like a Geico commercial that plays on this same yeah, yeah, joke. Yeah. Like like no, they just the make the dumbest yeah. decisions in horror movies, and it's typically, unfortunately, at least back in the day, the females that do that, and they're in jeopardy, and they're like you know weeping and whining, and like this is a well established trope, and I think she does it brilliantly. I think she is great. Yeah, you're trying. You're tr- you're. Tr- you're f- Figuring out a way to justify. I'm not. No. I'm not. Okay. No. 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 There's two. There's two. Sorry. There's two things here. There's two things here. All right. Take the scene where she calls on the radio to like the the base down at the bottom of the mountain, right? And she's just like, "How thing? How the phone lines out over?" And that scene, she's awful, right? It's just like like the most wooden performance. She's so bad. Okay, but then yeah, on the flip but side, so was the other guy on the on the phone? He's like, well, I know, man, but he's okay, fine. But he's a he has one scene in the movie, right? This yeah. is no, the, this I'm is telling, like the second my, lead. I'm sorry, but before you go on, that is intentional. There are many many moments like that in Kubrick films where these people are just exchanging platitudes, and you're like, why do we spend five minutes okay. doing this? I think that's I, why in that documentary, Kubrick is like, you're ruining my movie. <laughs> I, I, but he's Kubrick. Okay. He shot that movie for a year. He could cast whoever he wants. Okay, I bring me Meryl I disag- Streep. I, I disagree with you there, Chapin. That that scene was intentional. That I will say, Jeremy. I'm with you. That's bad acting. Everything else, though, I'm with you, Chapin. Like I think, I think you're supposed to hate her. I think the outrageousness of her performance is intentional. I think you're supposed to look at her. Why like, are you supposed to hate her? This way? And, like and, she's the one that's got, like running away, and you're supposed to be scared for her. I guess you're like, because you're, that's you're because that lends to, to know, you're supposed to no. know why she's annoying. You're okay, to, right, and that lends I, to the groundedness. Think that's the case. Jeremy, like that's what lends to the groundedness of of this story. Like it, there's all these supernatural elements, but like I said, the best part of this movie is is Jack deteriorating, going through this like cabin fever dealing with this isolation made worse by his obnoxious wife like i just think that all does I like really how work we're like oh this and, poor guy who's gonna <laughs> chop up his family had to no, fucking I, deal with this I, I, bee. I totally dismiss this idea jeremy that you're saying we're searching for a reason to let shelly duvall off the hook why the fuck would we do that i have what do we care if shelly duvall's bad in this movie like no because you want to justify you want to justify like sort of like oh, i totally get why this guy went jeremy, crazy Whoa, I, I, imagine I, okay. with her, huh? can right you guys good? Can you guys admit I am the one that will just latch on to a bad yes. performance in a yes. good movie and let it ruin things, right? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I yeah. am the one that does that. In this case, I think Shelley Duvall works. I, I am not going to come on this podcast and say she's a good actor in this movie. That's one of the Oscar snubs. Like she, like it, it's, it is not the Ben Affleck in Gone Girl. It is not the Kristen Stewart in Adventureland. It's not a performance that was just brilliant casting. I think there was somebody that probably could have done it better but all of that having been said Shelley Duvall works in this movie like it it, it works and it doesn't that, it work can... if it takes you out of the movie if you literally okay stop so but it never laughing. did for me it never did for me it never takes me out so because Sarah guess had never seen Sarah literally had never seen The Shining it's on her bucket list of movies so she was excited to watch it but there are moments where it was like she laughed out loud at how bad Shelley Duvall the only part clearly wrong was at the end when you said we've got to get him out of here as you got strong at the end and i think it has to be a last <clears throat> desperate begging you know and i still think 
You shouldn't jump on every single emphatic line. It looks fake. It really does. It looks like you... Shelly, uh, I'm telling you, it's too many times. Every time he speaks emphatically, you're jumping, and it looks funny. So he says, I'll put on my Superman suit. No, I think that line is right. When he lays down... No, I think that line's in the right place. Okay. Because, okay, Shelley. So you say, what's the matter with you first? Because what's the matter with you? I mean, why are you so angry? What is the matter with you? I don't know what are you talking about. Well, this is where he lays down, though. That's the only thing I was thinking of. You know, when he flops back on the bed. Since that is new, I thought it, it fit. You know, what's the matter with you? If you if you talk about and then he blows this up. right, I'd rather say it now. Okay. Right? Honestly, okay. don't think the lines are going to make an awful lot of difference if you get the right attitude. I think you're worrying about the wrong thing. Can we just have a quick uh, chat about it once more, shall I? There's someone else in the hotel with us. There's a crazy woman in one of the rooms. She tried okay. to straighten all that. And, and I totally understand that. I think I, I had a similar reaction when I saw it for the first time. I think. It works. I think it's important. I mean, it's one of those things like that's why Kubrick is an interesting filmmaker because there are these weird choices that he makes, especially when it comes around like human beings having dialogue with each other that that are like, why, why have we just spent five minutes of this movie with them going over and like, but like yeah. just <laughs> like there's that there's that sequence where. And and this was I brought up on the the rewatchables when they did it a year ago, but uh, where you know why do we have all that Dick Halloran stuff getting from Florida to Denver? Like that was that's an easy cut right there to save right. you know a certain amount yeah. of money to, but I love that stuff. I don't know why, but I love that stuff because it's okay, just like, I'll tell you why. I like, like it too. That makes sense to me. Like seeing I'll this guy, what he has to do to get there because he knows the danger. Yes, I'll, I'll tell you why. It, and this can, hopefully this can get us back into the cinematography and and some more of the like details in that. It's the pacing of this movie. Like everything is just like paced at this like almost monotonously slow rate, and it's so good. Like you just like see. You see him like sitting on a plane, not doing anything, right? You see him driving. You see, you see Danny driving his th- his big wheel down the hallways. Like everything is paced in this certain way, and the way it works with the steady cam is just so good. I just like th- okay, that's I, the thing that works so nicely about this movie. Well, and then actually, the, mu- I, the use of music is so effective. Before we get off of it, can I just interject on like the the other reason I think that Kubrick took so much time to get holler in there is because it how brilliant is it that you you get to watch the journey of the hero get there know something's wrong yeah (laughs) you know take that time to get there and then immediately get axed yeah before he's able to do anything like that wouldn't have worked as well if they just cut from him which is another departure from the book um you know holler and injured and he gets injured in the book yeah, but then it still takes part in kind of saving the day. God, I love when he gets killed. Like what? Yeah. What a moment. What a and moment. That's why and that's why you take that time to show him getting from A yeah. to B it's because like, it builds that up sure. for the hero okay, that, getting that's, there. That, that's a great it's point. It's like okay, can similar I just to like uncut more, gems, yeah. Let me make one more plea about um Shelley Duvall. So over. 
You 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 <laughs> like okay. This is that's exactly right. Look, her character. We should talk like that on the pod. Her character is warm. She's concerned about her son. She's doing everything right. But you just you're just annoyed by her. And that's the feeling that you would get if you had spent six months living with only that woman and a mentally disturbed young boy. Like those are the only people for company. And she is this kind person. I think that is what that is what that is part of the descent into madness is 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 finding like every little thing annoying and like and giving into your worst impulses. I know this is yep. a good person. I know she's my wife. I know she's caring for my child. But her little her, her little quirks drive me crazy. We, should we not put this on the podcast? Have we all not felt this? Right? <laughs> have, well, have, I want to see Miles right now. Where is he? <laughs> He's back Lydia, there, just stacked Lydia's up. But he has taken <laughs> care of him. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like. I feel like you can still pull that feeling off and and use a good actor. Okay, in and this role. is where and this is where I will like understand your point, Jeremy. I am not a, I am not opposed to somebody doing this job better, but I think Tilly Duvall works in this movie. And I don't know whose credit it, it is, like is it hers, is it Kubrick? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Like I just think she is an effective part of this movie. Okay, moving on. So, they built this whole hotel inside a couple sound stages in London. What an amazing choice. What a smart choice. What a great design. It's Holy so crap. good. Just, Especially that lobby. Jesus. And also, this, like our, as audience members, understanding of the space. We navigate that hotel. Like, we know where everything is. I think that's so great. Like... I I have issues with movies. I've talked about it before. Ridley Scott is is sort of an offender of this. Like, I I don't like not knowing where I am. Right. right? Movies like Alien, Blade Runner. I don't like not knowing where I am. And in this movie, you always know where you are. Like, I, and I love that you this this hotel is massive. It's so big, but you always kind of know where you are in relation to the other people, and it just works so effectively, both as just an like enjoying the movie, but also as a horror movie, right? You need to know where everybody else is because you need to know what's around the corner. So I think that stuff works so nicely. Uh, yes. I, I, it's just, um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was amazing, um, that they built that. I mean, you, you look at the, that room. I mean, I just, this is just some film nerd stuff, but if you look at the room where, you know, they filmed, um, you know the all, most of the scenes, the sort of the Colorado Lounge, that isn't looking out into a real daylight space. That is like a million watts of light blasting through those windows to create the sense right. of a snow cut, a snow washed outdoors. I mean, it's, it's just incredible the the lighting. And so, yes, uh, the Steadicam. Now, the Steadicam was first used in, I believe, nineteen seventy six. Uh, but this movie yeah, it's had a, the, a Hal Ashby movie. Yes, this movie had the rare. Although I think he worked on the other ones too. But the inventor of the Steadicam spent quite a bit of time on this movie, and it's just it's just it's well, just another another testament to Kubrick, like taking a new tool and and doing something that no one else did with it, and, well, and, and knowing he, how he uses to use it, it a lot. Yeah, knowing he how to it use it. He also puts 
I guess I read that he for the so what he did for the first time is he put the camera on the bottom of the steady cam. Inverted it, yeah. So you can get some low angle shots using the same the same tool. But like yeah, so I, I, I read the same thing. Like, 1976 is a Hal Ashby movie, and now I forget the name of it, was the first to use it uh, in a shot. Uh, Marathon Man with Dustin Hoffman, that movie used it. Rocky used it. Uh, and those movies were in the 70s. But, like, it's a lot of time, The Shining gets credited for being one of the first movies to use the Steadicam because it's so obvious that it was the first time that it was used, like, to a certain, to an extent that it's noticeable. Like it's used well, so much I think throughout they the were, entire movie. I think they were showing it off in a way they didn't, they weren't hiding yeah. it. Right. And I think that has to do with it because you're literally following somebody down hallways and turning and it, it, in a way that you, you're like, look at what I have to utilize to do this. Well, I think and it's it, the... and it, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, and I just, I, I think it shows the power of what that, that that tool can do yeah and i think it's like a a really smart i mean a really great example of a convergence between you know kubrick's idea for the set design which was we're going to really build this thing we're going to build it to in a huge scale and we're going to build it in a way that we can shoot shoot it like 360 degrees and we're going to add a steadicam to that so that you know and so for those who don't know a steadicam is basically a, a camera mounted to a an arm that is then mounted to uh, uh, an operator. And so it creates these very smooth shots and you don't it's need weighted, dolly tracks. Yeah. yeah, it's weighted. So it has a very, it's very smooth and um, balanced uh, without, you know, a lot of shaking and you, you, and you can pretty much move it anywhere. The human body can, can move. Um, and that, that part of it, like, I mean, if you look at the, you know, the, the, the 97 miniseries in the real in a, in a real hotel like it just doesn't have the scale and the sort of I, I mean i don't know i don't know really quite how to describe it but the it's you know it's a real hotel that they filmed in for for the 97 version and it's just it just doesn't have that kind of like quality to it that kind of like yeah. grand grandeur and um you know creepiness as well like i mean i think uh and with the maze, the maze too, like the way they, they filmed the Steadicam with the maze, I mean, I don't know. It just, it just, the convergence of those two things, the photography and the set design, I just think is genius. And I just like, it's not something that I like often, I mean, and obviously then, you think about how you film, you would film your sets, but like how much of what we remember not, of the movie is the convergence of those two things. You don't, you also don't think about it in that scale when you're building these sets. Right. Like you, you think of it in practical where you can put lights and how you can sort of, you know, not have a ceiling and you can, you can put a grid above it. Right. Um, but you don't think of it in terms of the movement as as much, unless you're trying to do something really fancy. Like I think of like kill bill when they're in the, um, uh, I don't know what's that a restaurant when the crazy eighty eight the crazy yeah. eighty eight where you can go up and you know show off where you are and being able to move above the ceiling and all that which when you're watching that it kind of takes you out of the movie a little bit because you go oh we're in a set because now we're seeing where normally there would be a ceiling or our cameras going above it and like I get like designs like that but this is designing it yeah, he in never a way abuses where it. You're you're living in a practical world, but you're also designing the set 
to accommodate your camera movement that yeah, are it never takes, there's it a never great takes advantage the, of the oh, it never takes advantage of the fact that it's a it's a like a, a free set right like it's that that there might not be a ceilings, wall right yeah, yeah. there's walls well, I don't, I don't, that's because i don't think there is i mean the, there's this great clip from the documentary where they are all like warming up and ready to shoot in the kitchen and kubrick is just like s- slapping away at a at a typewriter, you know, rewriting some scenes and they're just sitting in the kitchen and it looks like the kitchen. I mean, it's just, right. you know, often it's in those behind walls. the scenes, exactly. In the behind the scenes, you'll like, they'll cut to somebody and then there'll be a blue screen or they'll be like, you can see like they're behind a set and the, the artifice of it falls away very quickly. But because of the way they designed that, like they were, that was literally a kitchen. They were just in this kitchen that they designed to, to film. And it was yeah, lit in a way that like they, they were, they were hiding lights where you normally put lights. And that's not normal because when you normally design sets, you basically only design it to where the camera's going to be. Everything right. else, you move slightly around the corner, it's all facade. Where you could tell with this one, that's not the case. If you wanted well, to bring the camera somewhere else, you probably could have. Well, you see so much amazing. in a lot of these shots too, right? Like everything, you like the background of every shot is like that big that room where he's writing that has the big staircase you see that entire room you see every angle of that room at one point or another i guess you don't see the windows to the to the right side right where the where the lights are coming in but at every other point you see every side so they have to build that entire room i i, I am curious and uh, if this is uh, jeremy just you might have a have some insight on this that like obviously like the ease of a set right like if you build the set mm. that that makes production easier but where like what's the balance between you know sacrificing authenticity of on location versus you know shooting on a set because chapin you brought it up like this mini series they decided to shoot in a real hotel right but it just doesn't work the same way the now, they balance built... is money to be honest with you it's cheaper to film on location <laughs> than it is to build it right it, but a lot it, of times the is, argument is, is that there's you're not it's you're not going to shoot for a year <laughs> <laughs> like you couldn't right. you couldn't also, shoot in like, a, loca- it real on location where you're for a year. If you're shooting, you know, a space station or the White House or something like that, you're going to have to build it cuz you can't right, just but, find that. But my point is that like when you're on location a lot of the times there's an authenticity that isn't there when you build a set. Right. right? That's like why Michael Mann will doesn't like to shoot on sets. Right. So so take the money factor out of it. Like in this case yeah. like now this is probably not a great example because Kubrick just so much built a set, basically built a hotel. So it's not like it's, it's not like it's a sound stage that just has those three walls, you know. But right, but there's also a huge difference between interior and exterior scenes when it comes to this sort of stuff. Authenticity uh, in exterior scenes, yeah, is much more important. It's nearly impossible. To yeah, but they did it on this it. one. The exterior of that is all fake. The and exterior it looks of the just hotel like is that. in Oregon, but uh, wait, the, they filmed the exterior in Oregon. Not they 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 all the wide shots, but when they're when 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 Shelley Duvall and uh, what's his name, the little boy are that's Danny. all that is on set in England. Right. So they built little like small like if they had gone out a little bit, you'd see that they're just boards. It, I it's get a facade, that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a facade. Um, but in general, what I'm saying is exterior the authenticity. Uh, it's hard to recreate on a stage. I mean, you get sky, you get trees, you get, right. uh, you know, lampposts and buildings and stuff you just can't get when you build unless you really, really want to spend money. 
Uh, but I think that's a testament to, to to Kubrick's level of detail. I mean, he. So I think so. The the exterior is famously is the Timberline Lodge, which is in uh, uh, on Mount Hood outside of Portland. The inspiration for the interior design comes from the Awahani uh, Lodge that's in Yosemite, which I've been to. It's beautiful. It looks just like that. Um, and I think of course, the of course you've been there. Most people go there for like vacation. You went there because it looks like The Shining. Yeah, of course. I mean, I didn't stay there. Only I had a drink. But um, did yeah. you hook up with a guy in a bear costume? I did. I let, I let this yeah, guy just in a for bear. the authenticity, not because yeah. you can't. Well, they offer that as a service. So I mean, yeah, as long as you're there, right? Um, <laughs> to package. Yeah. So there was a lot, but 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 you know, to to sort of choose. I think they, you know, the 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 stuff they sh- like Kubrick didn't travel to shoot the stuff in Oregon. Like he had people shoot that stuff for him, and the you know the the opening title sequence is filmed um, on the way to Glacier in Montana. I think that level of detail and I mean for a, such a control freak to surrender that stuff, like the way that stuff is shot I think is really smart and to like take a real location but then build the fake hotel to match that real location I think is really intelligent because it kind of gives you bet the best of both worlds you've got this location that you couldn't really fake at least in 1980 um but then you go in for close-ups and it just it matches completely. I mean, in a weird way, I think it simplifies how people should make that decision. Whether to if if money's not an object, you simplify it by what level of control you want on something. And it's easier for a movie like this because there's only one location. But it's also complicated. very few characters. Yeah, it starts getting complicated when you have 70 locations. Which ones do you build? Which ones do you try to find? Like, you have to balance that all out. Whereas this one... Charmy's always just like, yeah, maybe just build them all. Uh, yeah, to an extent, I'd say <laughs> that. I mean, uh, to, to the point where I don't lose my job. <laughs> Couldn't find anything, guys. You're going to have to just build Sorry, it. Sorry, <laughs> going to have to build it. Um, I'd like to quickly talk about the music in this movie. Um, this was something I didn't remember about it. And it's pretty consistent throughout the entire movie. The music is constantly playing, but it's it's always changing. And it's sort of a bunch of different throwbacks to kind of like horror horror movie cliche type music. Like you have this, like the synthesize, synthesizer music. Uh, you have kind of like there's even moments where this is like a ooh in the background, which is like really kind of interesting. There's also a moment which... I, and I don't. I have no idea if this was intentional, an, an intentional reference or not. But <clears throat> when Danny goes, uh, when Danny goes up to the bed, up to the bedroom, he wants to get his fire truck right. And Jack is just like sitting on the bed. When he goes into this room, there's just this like high note on a piano that kind of plays. It goes like right. So there's a scene in Ghostbusters where Bill Murray comes into into Sigourney Weaver's apartment and he like plays that on the piano and he's just like uh, the ghosts hate that this is just going to irritate him I love messing with him and it's like very similar note and I'm like god could this have been a reference to The Shining that would be interesting but my whole point is this it's like there's a ton of different elements to this music that are constantly playing throughout this movie that I think add to the mood add to kind of the hypnotizing nature of this movie and I thought it was so effective I agree. 
Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the music. Oh, that's good. At, least, at least Jeremy enjoyed something about this movie. It's over the that top. He, that he hates. But, it, but, it, it's, but the, way he, the way that Kubrick uses it is just smart. I don't know. Like Sometimes I feel like it, uh, people it, who are skeptical of us could say, like, Kubrick could do anything and Chapin would say it's like intentional and important and works, but I just oh, shit, think that's what I should have said. I just think it does. I don't know. Like it, I'm, like it I, does. Like I, I, and, 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 and honestly, I have to admit like part of the, part of the like legend of the length of shooting on this and eyes wide shut and 2001 for that matter, like make me think that everything is really well thought out, you know, like this isn't uh like a, this isn't Spielberg shooting, you know, uh, Saving Private Ryan in two months, which just seems crazy. Like to some extent, you know, like a lot of the brilliance That's of that impressive. might have been accident. It w- that is very impressive because it's a great movie. And but you know, like to a certain extent, you have to just understand that, like you know, this has been very meticulously planned. And I just think like it's so easy to say. Right, like, like, uh, when when people talk about like geniuses, right? Like they'll they'll say, you know, Einstein uh, and a bunch bunch of others, right? So, yeah. <laughs> right, but they don't they don't question like, oh, was what they were doing intentional, right? But here, you, like Kubrick is a filmmaking genius, and so it, it's it's plausible that everything was intentional that he. Ha- that he knew what he was doing. Like, it doesn't mean we can't find flaws in his movie, but it doesn't mean that he didn't do it for a reason. Yeah. How I would describe the music is, uh, basically as far as it being over the top and intentional, it's very similar to like that. the opening of there will be blood when you see the mountain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there's that just basically that, yeah, that you know, Johnny Greenwood hum. score. Yeah, yeah, that that, Johnny Green. that film reminds me very much of both 2001 and just Kubrick works in general. I think, especially that. that yeah. Stuff. So it's I mean, literally, you're filming a mountain, and it's not even that impressive of a mountain, and you just get this crazy note. And I think that throughout this whole movie, that that's a similar way to utilize the music, and I think it's done really well. All right, Chapin. Yeah, well, we're at like an hour now, so or... why don't why don't we? Yeah, why don't we wrap it? Up? Why don't we do? Uh, we'll do our Netflix thing some other time. Oh, look at that! Oof. We had a lot to say. I we had did. one. I did have. Can I, just real quick, because I feel like I'll I'll be disappointed if I didn't ask you guys. Um, the red rum piece of this movie. Do you feel like that works, or is that a little on the nose? Right, like just. Yeah, it's part of the book that I don't really like. I think it kind of works. I think the, with the little finger movement, which I don't know. Right, if that whole if thing, but just the, like the idea that well, like red rum is just murder spelled backwards. Like, what does that mean? Like, what? Like, where? Like, I, I don't. I didn't. I felt like that was just very much like oh horror movie. What is a right? lot of? I mean, if you want to really get into it, like, what does a lot of it mean? Like, sure, but the old lady or the 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 young lady that turns into the old lady. What's the? But I don't. Guy, I don't mean it costume? in the same. I don't mean it in the same sense as that. Like, I just mean like, it, it, like why is why is murder, why is it murder spelled backwards? Like, it's just kind of that simple. Like, it just doesn't seem like a yeah. like it just is a Learn scary to image to see ghosts. 
Well, it's just a, it's a scary image to see red rum in the mirror, right? And it's spelled backwards. Yeah. But, like, it just doesn't – it didn't have a place for me. And, like, I just – that's a little nitpick I had with the movie. I wasn't quite sure I felt like that worked. So, see, Kubrick, not really that much of a genius. Not a genius. So, there we go, guys. You heard it here first. Kubrick, not a genius. Well, Fol- following up the Citizen Kane is bad podcast. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Uh, I am Chapin Hemingway. Lee has joined us. Jeremy is here, too. Um, fellows, Who hates we... The Shining. Yeah. A lot of, lot of weird takes from us the last couple last couple weeks but uh we hope you enjoyed it let us know what you guys think i know this is a movie that not everybody loves but if you love it or you don't let us know feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com send us your voice recordings if you want some uh to get your uh, voice heard on the podcast thank you so much for listening i'm staying i'm finishing my coffee Enjoying my coffee.